We begin a new series today uh, in the book of First Samuel. And just recently, as we were traveling, my wife pulled a, a book off the shelf that hasn't been off the shelf in a long time. You probably have books on your shelf that have been there forever. It was entitled, uh, Jesus Freaks. And it made me think of today's passage of Scripture. It made me think of Hannah. Hannah, in many ways, is a Jesus freak. What do I mean by that? Uh, What I mean is that when an individual is very close to the Lord and loves God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength, and is intimate with Him, and knows Him very well, that those on the outside of the church, and even some of those inside the church, will view that person as a Jesus freak, or a religious fanatic, or someone who had a come-to-Jesus moment. They will use some pejorative term because they don't understand the closeness of the relationship of this person and their God, and they just look like a weirdo. They just look like a Jesus freak. Hannah, of course, was long before the coming of Jesus, so to be precise, she would have been a Yahweh freak. Her God was the covenant-keeping God of Israel, and it happened, chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, over a thousand years before the coming of Christ. The time in which Hannah lived was not too dissimilar from our own time. It was a period called the time of the Judges. And many of you are familiar with the sentence, the last sentence in the book of Judges, describing the spirit of that age. The spirit of that age was each man, each woman does what is right in his or her own eyes. Does that sound like an age that we live in? Say yes. It is. So we are entering an ancient period as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I hope you have your Bibles open, your devices open, and I'm asking God to speak to us through this passage, a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I've divided today's passage into four scenes. Scene 1, we're introduced to Elkanah, verses 1 through 8. 9 through 11, we're going to see scene 2, and Hannah makes this vow. And then scene three, there is a spiritual breakthrough. Some of us here today need a spiritual breakthrough. We're going to hear about that in 12 through 18, scene three. And then the final scene, scene four, last couple verses, 19 and 20, we're going to look at is the Lord answers his children. So let's begin here taking a look at verses one through three, 1 Samuel chapter one. There was a certain man from Ramah Athim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerhoaham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, and Ephraimite. Verse 2, he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Verse 3, Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty or to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. 
Just a couple comments here on, on the, the text. It's the word that's describing God in verse 3, Lord Almighty. In Hebrew, it is Yahweh Sabaoth. You might be familiar with this name for God in Martin Luther's hymn. Lord Sabaoth is his name. The idea here in this name of God, this is the first time it's used in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. The idea here is that our God is a God with mighty armies, with mighty hosts. He is incredibly powerful. And that is an important theme in this chapter. Before we get into the main thing in this chapter, I want to hit something that's controversial and something that we see throughout the Old Testament, and that is polygamy. So, we have this man that we're introduced to, scene one, Elkanah, with two wives. And one is Hannah, and the other is Penina. Now, it is very likely that Hannah was wife number one. And in the ancient Near East, not too dissimilar, not too dissimilar to today, but especially in the ancient Near East, the way life was viewed, the way humans thought of themselves as blessed, particularly Israelites, were in two things that you had, kids and crops. Those were the two things that they believed were indicators of God's blessing on your life. It is very likely that Hannah was wife number one. She has no children. And so Elkanah, or Elkanah, secured himself another wife, which was incredibly common in the ancient Near East, and we read about this in the Scriptures. I want to say that this is not God's will. Polygamy. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife. A man, singular, joined to his wife, singular. You add up one plus one and you get two, not three, not 500. In the ancient Near East, kings and people who were powerful had hundreds of wives as a statement of power and authority and elitism. But that is not God's will. God will is one plus one is two, and the two shall become one flesh. So this is Ephesians 5 quoting Genesis 2, and then in Ephesians 5 it says this mystery, what mystery? The mystery of Christian marriage is great. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So Christian marriage is a relationship between one man and one woman until death do us part, that symbolizes the exclusive and incredible and covenantal love between Christ and his church. It doesn't work when you have multiple wives. It is not a good thing. I'm spending time on this because over the years I have talked with many people for whom this troubles them, and so this is in my mind, and so that's why this is not a main emphasis in the text today, but are you tracking with me? I'm just being a pastor here. And I've talked with people who are like, how does God do this? This, this is often what we read in the Bible is, is, is what is going on in life, and we should not read it as an endorsement of that thing. When we read Peter's denials, that's not an endorsement of denying Christ. But it's, it's what happened. And this is what happened. A cultural sin, a common sin, a way that life should not be lived out. Polygamy 
Its complications and unsavory results are everywhere apparent. And this is chief example number one, 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to get into it in just a moment. Um, Another commentator writes this. He says, The spiritual and familial devastation on display in Scripture's accounts of polygamy invites us to see the beauty of monogamous marriage climaxing in the union of Christ and his bride. And finally, one last thing on polygamy before we get going here. This is a map of our world today, and the countries in blue, can you guess what they are? They are, they are countries where polygamy goes on. It's illegal in the Russian Federation and in Brazil, but in certain areas, like in Chechnya and certain areas of Brazil, and all of the areas that are blue are areas where polygamy is either legally allowed or practically functionally allowed. If I were pastoring in those areas, and a man was married to a Hannah and came and said, hey, pastor, I would like you to marry me to Penina, I would say no. I would say no. We all got that? All right. So that's, I don't plan on hitting polygamy the rest of 1 Samuel. There we go. There you got polygamy. It's wrong. It's not good. It's a cultural sin. And it was common in the Old Testament. Let's come back to our text. Verses 4 and 5. Before I hit verse 4, if you want to circle something in your Bible, verse 3, I would circle year after year. Year after year, this man... Elkanah and his family went to worship. He was a godly man. He has massive deficiencies. We're going to see those in a moment. But this year after year, this phrase is, is important. It occurs twice. So uh, back to our text here, verses 4 and 5. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, had closed her womb. That is another very important thing. Her womb is closed. Who closed her womb? It wasn't some medical misfortune that she had. It wasn't because of some sin she committed. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel that she is incredibly close to, closed her womb. This is a bitter providence. Does this look like a test case for the advocacy of polygamy? So he goes down to Shiloh to worship. He gives Penina and her children meat. They are the ones that need the double portion, but... Elkanah has more love for his wife Hannah, so he gives her, the one who has no children, the double portion of meat. You think this was a complicated situation? How do you think Penina felt? God blessed her with children, but with a husband who preferred the other wife. And when they would go to worship, he made that very clear. And gave her this double portion. Verses 4 and 5 are an indication of the nightmare that polygamy is. Verse 6. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival 
kept provoking her in order to irritate her. So she has no children. She is longing for them. She gets a double portion when they go to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, to worship of the meat that is remaining. And every time she goes, Penina is provoking and irritating her. This is a woman who suffered, verse 3, year after year. This was the bulk of her life and experience. Barrenness, more affection from her husband than the other wife is getting, and provoking and irritation. This was an incredibly difficult life. Penina's derision of Hannah is emphatic to the point that it is like the sound of thunder in her. She has a very difficult life. Verse 7, this went on year after year. In case you didn't get it in verse 3, you get it in verse 7. Now, we know the happy ending, and in Sunday school, we don't tend to focus on what I've focused on so far in this part. This woman, Hannah, had an incredibly difficult life. Although your circumstances, thankfully, are very different than hers, they are also possibly very similar to hers. It is possible that your life has not been as you intended it or thought it would be. That was the case for Hannah. For most of her life, year after year, provoked by the other wife, shown this affection by her husband, but that affection was not, even though it was genuine, wasn't really coming to her the way that she needed it to come to her. We're going to see more of that in just a moment. This is a really difficult life. Verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Year after year, as they go to Shiloh and worship. And in this particular moment, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Now, husbands, take note. This is not how to talk to your wife. Instead of saying, Hannah, why are you weeping? He should have said, Hannah, I'm so sorry that you have no children and that I took Penina and that she tortures you and she makes fun of you. I'm so sorry. I love you. Instead, he loves her. Just like many of you husbands here today, you probably love your wives, but you say stupid things to her. Why are you weeping? Are you kidding me? Why am I weeping? Where is the two by four? That's not in the text, but that's what I think she would want to say to hit you upside the head with the two by four. Elkanah, why don't you eat? Dumb question number two. She's fasting. She is a Jesus freak. 
She is a woman of prayer and fasting. Why don't you eat? Because she needs help. And she knows help comes from the Lord. That he is Lord Sabaoth, Yahweh, Sabaoth. He has these powerful armies, and I know he can help me. So she's fasting. And then to top it off, after the questions, why are you downhearted? Here comes a statement, end of verse 8. The, the, the fourth reason how not to be a husband. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Are you kidding me? You live in a culture where your value and worth, identity, wrongly, is seen in crops and kids. Your wife has no kids. You've got another wife who was able to have kids. And you're saying to her, don't I mean more to you than ten sons. This is a man who loves his wife. We need help as husbands in how to talk to our wives. And this is how not to talk to our wives. This is scene one, Elkanah, one to eight. Now we have scene two, Hannah's vow, verse nine. So we should have in our mind year after year of this miserable life of Hannah going to worship at Shiloh where the tabernacle was is before the temple's built. Verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of Yahweh's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And she made a vow. And she said, Lord Almighty, Lord Sabaoth, Yahweh Sabaoth. She's using this name the first time in, in the Old Testament. In this chapter, this is the second time it's used. She made this vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery. She has lived a life of misery. And remember me. And not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to Yahweh, to the covenant-keeping God of Israel, for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. She has gotten to the point year after year where she has made a Nazarite vow for the son that she doesn't have that she's asking God to give her. She's saying, I'm going to surrender him. I mean, this is incredible. What I expect her to say is, God, this has been so painful. My life. Would you please give me one son that I could nurse him and love him and hold him and watch him grow up, and watch him get married, and smile. Would you give me that? She says, will you give me that? And I'm going to give him right back to you to serve at the tabernacle or at the temple. And she's committed this vow, this Nazarite vow. No grapes, no wine ever in his life. No haircuts. That's kind of tough, lifelong. But that's what's going on here. And no, um, no contact with dead bodies. That's the Nazarite vow. 
That's what her, her vow is. Her heart has been, if she had Psalm 10, which I don't think she did, but if she had it, she would have been praying all of these years, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble year after year after year? Nothing has changed. She is still miserable, but she has made this vow. And she is willing to give him up if the Lord would honor this vow and give her a son. Let's come back to the text here. Where are we? Verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, so this is the priest, the pastor, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Now, this doesn't really make sense to us unless we understand in the ancient world, people did not read silently. That's a very new human phenomenon if we think of the history of civilization, the history of God's people, the history of the universe. For, for many, many millennia, all reading and all praying was done out loud. So if you were sitting alone on your deck at home and you happened to have a book or a Bible, which you probably wouldn't unless you were very rich, and you were reading it, you read it aloud. The idea of reading silently has not come to humanity yet. So she is doing something incredibly unusual. She's praying. Eli sees her mouth moving, but she's not saying anything out loud. When you pray, you pray out loud, period, even if you're all alone. So she's praying in her heart. Lips are moving, her voice is not heard. Continuing on, Eli thought she was drunk. So this, this woman has got a fantastic husband and pastor. Her pastor sees her radically praying and thinks that she's drunk. And said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. So can you have bad husbands and bad pastors, bad spiritual leaders? Say yes. So she has that. She has that. Verse 15. Does she call a congregational meeting to get them voted out? Look at her response in verse 15. Not so, my Lord. She speaks with respect for the office of the priesthood, even though the priest doesn't deserve to be in that office. Not so, my Lord. This is incredibly deferential and respectful. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. Many of you here, women and men, are probably deeply troubled today. We have a lot to learn from this text if you are deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or, or beer or strong drink, I was pouring out my soul to Yahweh. She is a Jesus freak, and the priest cannot identify that she's a Jesus freak. Verse 16, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. She is looking to God in prayer, and she has been doing it year after year after year after year, with no children, no son, a clueless husband who loves her, and a wife, a husband's wife who is intentionally torturing her because Panina knows 
Elkanah, Elkanah loves you more than me. So she says in verse 18, to the priest, may your servant find favor, which is the Hebrew word hen, which is very much related to the Hebrew name Hannah. Favor or grace. May your servant find favor or grace in your eyes. This is a remarkable response from a woman who has been living in great anguish and grief for years. Then she went her way and she ate something. The clue to the reader here is that the fast is over. She is experiencing spiritual breakthrough after many, many years. The fast is over. Not that she fasted for years, but cyclically she has been fasting for years as they go to Shiloh and worship and she endures the mockery of Penina, her husband's wife with children. And her face was no longer downcast. Verse 18. She moves from misery to joy. This is not just about her face. It is about her heart and her life. Her face is an indicator of her heart and life. She is no longer downcast because she has had an encounter with the living God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, and she is encouraged and blessed at the end of verse 18. She has had a spiritual breakthrough. If your life is is not what you wanted it to be, you need a spiritual breakthrough with God more than you need your life to change. She has no son at this point. Panina didn't like say, hey, you know what, from now on, I'm going to stay over here and I'm going to stop bothering you. That didn't happen. Her husband didn't acknowledge his cluelessness and how his words that were intending to help have been just wounding her further. That didn't happen. She had an encounter and saw the sufficiency of God after fasting and praying, and she is now out of her depression. It didn't happen quickly. It didn't happen in a moment. Years have gone by. Years of barrenness and ridicule from her husband's second wife. Now, we're about to close here in the next couple verses, but before we get there and we see how the Lord answers her prayer, we want to connect... Whenever we're reading the Old Testament, we want to connect the Old Testament to the New Testament. We want to read the Old Testament in light of the gospel, in light of the truth in the New Testament. It's new. It's superior. It is a better covenant. And so we get into trouble if we read the Old Testament in isolation of the New Testament. And before we get to the happy ending here, I want to say and remind you that the New Covenant makes it really clear that we don't always have happy ending stories like we're about to read. So someone else who uh, struggled a lot in life was the Apostle Paul. And he, um, and he, sorry, I'm jumping through some texts here. 
and he had a thorn in the flesh. He also had a difficult life. And like Hannah, he was asking for God to take, he was asking for relief from God. Hannah's asking for a child, for a son. And Paul is asking for the removal of this pain, this, this thorn in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulty. See, as we look to the new covenant, as we look at 2 Corinthians, we see, remember, let me just ask you and, and, and answer me verbally here, who closed her womb? The Lord God did. She didn't have a a disease, or if she did, it was irrelevant. God did it. Who gave these hardships in Paul's life? It was the Lord, the thorn in the flesh. The enemy gives him the thorn in the flesh, but who doesn't take it away? The Lord doesn't take it away. What I'm trying to get at is we need a, a new covenant theology of suffering and difficulties. God doesn't always answer our prayers the way that we want them. That's what he's about to do with Hannah. But for Paul, he doesn't take away the thorn. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is a huge summary in 2 Corinthians 12. We could really put that over 1 Samuel 1 too. We could also put that in 1 Samuel, 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1 also. Hannah has gotten strong before God answers her prayer through the spiritual breakthrough that she's had after fasting and praying cyclically for year after year, verse 3, verse 7. This went on year after year. That's referring both to the irritation from from his other wife. This is referring to the worship of the Lord year after year. This is referring to her condition of suffering and having great anguish year after year. And she realized In the words of the new covenant, while I'm weak, I'm strong. She got strong because of her relationship and her closeness to God. Connecting this passage with the new covenant as well, the very last words of Matthew's gospel, behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We have a superior covenant in the new covenant. And what it is saying there to you and to me today, what God is saying is he's recognizing it's going to be a long time We now know it's been 2,000 years before I come back, and so I am with you, you, until the end of the age, not just to the disciples, not just to the apostles, not just to the first century New Testament church, but to you, fill in your name, today, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hannah knew that truth year after year, that God was with her. She didn't need primarily a better husband. She needed that. She didn't need primarily a monogamous marriage. She needed that. She needed primarily a close and intimate relationship with the covenant-keeping God where she could have a spiritual breakthrough and the downcastness of her face and her soul would go away. And that's where she found her hope was in the Lord. James tells us, 
I'm, I'm going here to connect 1 Samuel 1 to the New Testament and New Covenant. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Hannah persevered. She lived this text out long before it was written. All right, let's uh, finish up here with this good ending, which is where I want to spend most of my time, but we're just going to spend a couple moments here. Scene one, Elkanah. Scene two, Hannah's vow. Scene three, a spiritual breakthrough. And then finally, scene four, final scene for today. The Lord answers his children. He answers his children. Let's look at what happens after the spiritual breakthrough. Verse 19. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. They went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. God is sovereign over this whole thing. Most of her life is trials, hardship, and great anguish. She keeps praying and keeps fasting even though nothing changes. Year after year, finally there's a change. The new covenant tells us he is not necessarily going to bring that change that you want into your life. He may or may not. He does to Hannah. The Lord remembered her. Verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. There's something beautiful in the language here for you literary people in Hebrew. You can't see it in English, just like we saw earlier with Hen and Henea. Here we have it with his name, Samuel, and the verb, I asked. Seal. Uh, my Hebrew is not very good. Let me just summarize it to say, the name Samuel and the verb I ask sound exactly the same. So this one that is going to be given over for full-time ministry that she's going to surrender, not have her as a joy in the home to watch all of these things for myself that I want as a mom, but I'm going to surrender him over to you. His name, every time she says it or thinks of it, is I asked. I asked the Lord for him. I asked the covenant-keeping God of Israel for him. God gave that son to her, but before the son, God gave her joy and removed her depression, her discouragement, and her anguish. As we close up today, the sermon, level one here is Hannah is the hero of this unit of Scripture. But the next level, the most important level in this unit of Scripture is that God is the hero and you and I desperately need Him. We should primarily not be looking at Hannah, but at this covenant-keeping God who sent His Son to die, to suffer, and then he said, you as my followers will also suffer, but I will be with you until the very end of the age. 
And as we fast and pray, connecting this again with the New Covenant, the New Testament assumes as a Christ follower that you fast and pray. Did you know that? If you are down and depressed and discouraged, one of the ways to respond appropriately to 1 Samuel 1 is have I been praying and fasting for years and seeking God's face? That's what Hannah did with no results as far as a son goes for a long time. But God sustained her year after year after year as they worshiped in this incredibly dysfunctional polygamous family. He sustained her to where she had a spiritual breakthrough and she is not downcast. And he gives her a son that she is going to surrender. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know that you have called us to be Lord of our lives. And we are often looking in other places for our joy and our satisfaction and not in you. We thank you for this example of one who kept seeking you through an incredibly difficult life. We thank you for the spiritual breakthrough that she received. Lord, I would think there are many here today that are in need of a spiritual breakthrough, whose lives are not well, whose hearts are downcast. Lord, there are specific things that we would like in our lives, and we ought to keep praying for those things when they are good things, like a son. But more than that, we need you, and we need your face. Help us to fast, to pray, and if need be, to do that for year after year. You have promised to sustain us and to be with us. May we experience that joy of knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.